The Process, a podcast about creativity and experimental music. In the world of experimental music, outcomes and accolades for creators can be uncertain and at times seem far and few between. Therefore, creators and practitioners of experimental music must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one creator and their music. Understanding how and why they create can inform aspiring creatives and help audiences better understand and navigate experimental music. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of experimental music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. Jessica Rudman's music inspires empathy for contemporary social issues through stories of myth, magic, and science fiction. Described as a new music ninja by the Hartford Advocate, she blends lyrical melodies and dramatic narrative structures with sensual harmony and vibrant color to draw the audience into the world she has created. Her works for the concert hall, dance, and film often differ in musical language, with the common thread always being expressivity. Rudman's music has been performed by groups including the Arditi Quartet, International Contemporary Ensemble, the Riot Ensemble, the Omaha Symphony's Chamber Orchestra, the Yakima Symphony Orchestra, and the Hartford Independent Chamber Orchestra. She was a 2019 Connecticut Artist Fellow and is currently a Composer Fellow in the American Opera Project's Composer and the Voice Program. She has also received awards from the SCI ASCAP, Boston Metro Opera, the College Music Society, and the International Alliance for Women in Music. Rudman is the director of the Hart Preparatory Academy and the head of composition and musicianship at the Hart School Community Division. She is also an active theorist and arts advocate. Rudman holds degrees from the Cooney Graduate Center, the Hart School, and the University of Virginia. Oh. 
I'm almost always writing for a specific person or ensemble and a specific concert. And a lot of what I've been doing the last few years has been vocal music of some sort. Mm. Um, So my starting place really is who I'm writing for, both the performers and also the the possible audience that they're going to be performing for and the circumstances that they'll be performing the piece. And then the text. With the, with vocal pieces, the text always comes first for me. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is something that I spend a lot of time with, um, reading it over and over and, and analyzing it and uh, thinking of, of how best to set it. And then I usually start um, with singing uh, and I'll, I'll sing at the piano. Sometimes I will record myself and then go back and, and transcribe it. Sometimes I'll transcribe as I go. Um, and I have started doing my sketching all on my iPad. Mm. Um, I use uh, like a notebook program that has um, staff paper PDFs in it. And I just, sure. you know, yeah. write it down there. And usually I'm just getting notes and I leave the the rhythm sort of proportional and then I'll go back and forth between uh, singing and playing and writing things down at the piano and uh, working at the computer. Sometimes I, I sketch things away from the piano and then check them later on. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of back and forth and a lot of revising. <laughs> you said sometimes, especially for like a, a choral work, the text is really important. What are some texts that intrigue you? What is it about? Are you sitting reading a book? Are you reading a a poem? What about a certain text will say, okay, this is something I need to set? Um, I mean, I I gravitate towards certain themes. Um, Sure. I I tend to do a lot with texts that relate to um, gender-related themes, themes that sort of speak to contemporary experiences and um, sometimes personal issues, but sometimes more social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so the theme is one thing and then it's just the, the quality of the words and whether I sort of hear music when I'm reading them. I've started working a lot with living poets. I have one, uh, in particular, Kendra Preston Leonard, who wrote the text for, um, A Forest That Is a Desert. And so we've done a number of, of collaborations together and sometimes, she has a text uh, that she'll ask me if I want to do, which is how we started working together in the first place. She had a, an opera libretto that she contacted me to see if I was interested in setting. And then sometimes she will post her work online, you know, that gets published in literary magazines or things like that. And then I will see it and be like, oh, I want to set that. <laughs> <laughs> I also keep a notebook in, uh, I use Evernote, I keep a note book in there that's just poems that I find that I someday would like to set. So I have like you have, yeah. hundred, probably hundreds of poems in there <laughs> yeah. at this point. So if I, if I have a piece coming up, then I might go through and look and see if there's poems in there that, that I would want to use for that piece. Well, do you often get commissions where What's the norm? Are you normally getting commissions where they already have a text that they would like you to set? Or is it often just like, write us something beautiful for the choir? Yeah, most of the pieces, uh, the commissions for vocal pieces that I'm doing, they're pretty open about the text. I've had commissioners give me sort of a theme 
or a direction, and then we'll share the, the text that I'm thinking about with them for approval. But I really haven't had anything that I can remember where someone had an exact text can you set this poem like yeah yeah i i was approached once about setting a specific text but certain logistics didn't work out for us to do the commission at that time yeah other than that it's it's really been pretty open in terms of choosing texts you talked about working with kendra preston leonard mm -hmm. so what is it about kendra's writing that or is it a, a work style what what about setting their poems is is most interesting yeah we yeah we've done a few collaborations together um and we actually have two uh two in progress right now so partly it's that her work really resonates with me um she's interested in similar themes to what appeals to me and her writing is just it's just beautiful and then we we just work together very very well we have a lot of back and forth in our collaborations and uh she's really open to you know to tweaking things if something you know if there's a word that's going to be awkward to say sure you know if i want to do excerpts or you know she's really open to to me sort of taking her words and doing things that maybe some other writers might not be comfortable with so the text Text is somewhat set, but it kind of sounds like there can be some true collaboration where you're saying, okay, maybe can we move this around a little bit? Do you ever hesitate to do that sometimes? If I'm collaborating with a, with a poet who has very firm ideas about how they want the text to be used, then I, I respect that. If it's a, a poet who is a little more loose in, in what they're comfortable with in terms of how their words are used, then I feel a little more free. And if it's, you know, a, a public domain text and the poet yeah. is not around to complain, <laughs> um, <laughs> then I, again, would probably be a little more, more open to uh, adapting as needed. had a chance to listen to an excerpt from a forest that is a desert. Tell us a little bit about the instrumentation, why you wrote it or how the piece became to be, and then uh, who we're actually hearing in the recording. A Forest That is a Desert was written for the Choral Arts Initiative um, as part of their premier project festival, which is a, a, a summer workshop that they do each year where composers can have pieces workshopped and performed. This piece was written for them for that festival. And so it was pretty open in terms of what 
to do, aside from the fact that it needed to be a cappella choir and it needed to be within a, a certain time frame for what they could rehearse and produce. When I proposed the piece for the festival, I had a couple things in mind. One was that I knew I wanted to work with a living poet. I wanted to build on a piece I had written the previous year called Foundling, which is another vocal piece. It's a more of an experimental piece where I made a list of all the things I normally do when I'm writing a piece. And then I tried to do the opposite or find ways to not do what I normally would do. Sure. And so it's um, graphic notation and text instructions and um, vo- vocalists with uh, small handheld percussion instruments sort of exploring the, the possible timbre of the voice and using the voice improvisationally, which is not something that I had really done in uh, vocal writing much before and certainly not for choral setting. So I wanted to take some of the things that I had learned from writing that piece and incorporate it into more of a traditional choral piece. Sure. Kendra had shared a a poem online that she wrote about the passing of her mother who had dementia. And it just, it was this beautiful poem and I, I fell in love with it. And so I, yeah. was was like okay this is perfect i had all these ideas for how how to use it in the piece and i i texted her and i was like can i use this for for this project mm-hmm. and she was like well i would love for you to set it but it's already somebody else already has dibs oh, oh, no. oh somebody has dibs oh, okay <laughs> somebody else was already setting it um so <laughs> Uh, so I, so how'd I, you end up getting dibs then? Uh, this well, is going to be exciting. It's uh, a different, this, did, this is different text. Different, oh, so okay. I, I looked at a, a bunch of other texts and I was trying to find something else, but I still just was, was stuck on that first text. And so I asked her, I was like, would you, would you be open to maybe writing a companion text or something that explores yeah. similar yeah. ideas? And she was like, yeah, I have, I have a lot of stuff I'm still kind of working through. So sure. let me, let me see what I can come up with and I'll get back to you. And then in an insanely short amount of time, she came back with these three fantastic poems. So those three poems became the text for the three movements of A Forest That Is a Desert. The first movement uses a, a fair amount of extended vocal techniques um, mm-hmm. and the more melodic material kind of emerges from these more coloristic textures. The effects that are used, they're not just... Um, they're not just there for color or as, you know, because I wanted to use extended techniques. Sure. They're, they're there to try to reflect this experience of, of dementia, of, yeah. you know, not being able to make sense and not being able to tell where you are or what's going on or to, to fully remember things. So it's to, to create this sort of mental confusion where there's moments of clarity and then they sort of dissolve and, and then come back into focus and and then lose it again one part that really stuck out to me and now kind of sort of knowing the text and sort of the subtext of the piece there's about three-fourths of the way through the third movement we hear a lot of overlapping and the texture becomes very um layered and it almost sounds like we're not in any kind of like satb type situation anymore where we're now in this sort of every person for themselves Mm -hmm. um you said also, too, there's a visual component to this. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that sort of three-fourths of the way through the movement, what you're doing, what's going on, uh, both, 
both sonically and visually. Towards the end of the piece, at the spot that you're talking about, the choir all comes together to sing that main refrain. And then I have the choir split in half. Mm -hmm. And then from there, there's instructions that the singers one by one are going to start walking off the stage. Mm -hmm. And as they walk off the stage, they stop singing with the choir, which is repeating that two-part counterpoint. And instead, they have some modules that they can pick from that yeah. are different melodies from earlier in the piece. Yeah. And they can sing them exactly, or they can use them to ad lib. And it start, sort of is a, a snowball effect where it starts with one singer leaving, and then two singers leave, and then a larger number, and until everybody leaves... Um, except for one singer who stays up there repeating um, what the whole choir was doing. The singers, while they're doing this improvisation and they're walking out, they're instructed to all sort of take different paths through the space. Um, so depending on where you're sitting in the hall, you're going to hear different things and um, and it's going to be different every time. And the singers gradually fade out as they get to the back of the hall and then either stay at the back of the hall or, or exit if there's a way to exit. So that you're just left with the one singer singing the refrain on stage by themselves. And then and what, and what is that specific text that a final singer is singing? So what the singer is left, uh, the soloist is left singing on stage at the end is hold my hand, you won't get lost. So it's one mm. singer singing this, hold my hand, you won't get lost. And everyone else has, has left um, yeah. sort of in a, a metaphor for the loved ones that are left behind. Having a perspective and having something to say, having something that you want to to express or accomplish that is mm -hmm. unique, I would I would much rather hear a piece that is rough in terms of of its technique or that it's do some revising or that the composer is still sort of early in their development, but that it has something that is unique and is meaningful rather than a piece that is extremely well written but not memorable and 
or or just not unique and could sound like it was written by a hundred other composers. The the craft is really solid, but the message or the opinion or the point of view is not as fresh. Yeah. And I, I think that you can learn technique through hard work and you can mm. improve your sense of proportion and your your counterpoint and the effectiveness of your melodies and your harmony and all of these things that that might come instinctively to some uh, some people and might be labeled as talent in that sense. But it's I think it's harder to learn to not be generic. Well, I wonder too, you know, someone who's been through uh, several academic systems, we talked about our, our own experiences being composition students at the, at the Hart School. We had many different teachers while we were there. Do you think that's an important part of that? Do you, do you think that plays into your ability to sort of communicate and express things? Having a lot of different teachers, or not necessarily a lot, but multiple different teachers is really beneficial for composers, both in terms of the, the development of their technique and in terms of the development of their voice. Just because each person is going to respond to your work in different ways and they're going to have different elements sure. that they're going to focus on. And also when you work with a teacher for an extended period of time, you internalize how they think and what they're going to say. So at a certain point, you get to a place where you know what their feedback is going to be and, and you can, you do it anyway. And you do it well, anyway. You do it anyways, you do it anyways <laughs> or you, you know, um, or you know to fix it before you see them because you know that they're going to say right. X, Y, and Z. Well, their voice starts to become your voice. So when you're sitting there and saying, oh, I shouldn't do this, or this is what I'm doing here, or, oh, I should think more about this, I almost feel like that's sort of a culmination of, of, of a teacher's Yeah, voice. I mean, in a certain sense, their, their voice kind of becomes part of your voice. Um, the danger is when their voice takes over your voice. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. When my students are looking for schools to apply to, one of the things that I suggest to them is to listen to pieces by not just the teachers, but also the students, and to look out for schools where all of the students sound the same. That, that to me, is a big yeah. warning sign. That there's maybe some mandate. Or it's some mandate or requirement, or just that maybe that the force of personality there is so strong that all the students kind of imprints on them. And I would much rather see students going somewhere where the teachers are meeting the students where they are and, and what they are interested in doing and helping to facilitate that rather than cookie cutter uh, molding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jessica, this has really been fantastic. I really appreciate A Forest That Is a Desert, that piece, even more now knowing the text. Um, uh, was thought it was a wonderful piece. Um, I actually really enjoy the part where things start to become very disoriented <laughs> and discombobulated. I love that part. I was like, this is this feels really free to me. Unfortunately, that's sort of the kind of uh, saddest part about the whole uh, situation and, and dementia. Uh, what a fantastic piece. And thank you so much for spending some time with us and sharing your music with us. Before I let you go, how can we find out more about you and your music? Uh, so the best place to um, find out more is my website, which is just jessicaredman.com. Um, 
It has uh, links to audio and video recordings. It has um, an e-store with uh, perusal scores for a lot of pieces, um, you know, and then it has your standard bio and contact form and all that good stuff. Um, so that's that's the best place to find me. And you mentioned we can also see a video of a performance of A Forest That mm -hmm. Is a Desert as well on that on that site as well. So for anybody listening who wants to see the sort of physical man manifestation of some of the things we were talking about, uh, th sort of the theatrical aspects, uh, they, can, they can see that there as well. Thanks to Jessica for sharing her music and experiences with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out the other episodes in the podcast and feel free to like, subscribe, and leave a comment on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and this has been The Process.